0: Hello, you're listening to new things under the sun. I'm Matt Clancy. This week's podcast, what are the returns to R&D? A thought experiment by Jones and Summers. So Jones and Summers 2021 is this new working paper that tries to calculate the social return on R&D. That is, in other words, how much value does a dollar spent on R&D create? And this paper is like something out of another time because the argument is so simple and it's straightforward. It really could have been made at any point in the last 60 years. There's no new math, and no new sort of theoretical insights. It's just sort of basic accounting and some really simple data. The main insight is just how do you frame a particular problem? And what I want to do in this post is walk through Jones and Summers' simple thought experiment. At the end, we'll have this new argument that the returns on R&D are really high and that we probably should be spending a lot more on R&D than we are. Next week, we'll look at some empirical data to see if it matches the intuition of the thought experiment. And, you know, spoiler, it will. I'm not leading you astray. So let's start with this model of long-run changes in material living standards that's going to be so simple it's kind of hard to argue with. It's just three parts. One, R&D is this activity that consumes some of the economy's resources. Two, R&D is actually the only way that new technologies come into existence. And three, growth in GDP per capita only comes from new technologies, at least in the long run. Now we're going to re-examine all of those points later, But for now, just accept them and let's move forward. So this model helps us clarify what it means to compute the returns to R&D. If we do more R&D, we're going to have to use more of the economy's resources, but in return, we're going to get more GDP per capita. So computing the returns to R&D is really just about computing how much does growth change when we spend a bit more on R&D. Specifically, you know, if we increase R&D by, say, 1%, what's going to be the expected impact on GDP per capita? That's actually a really hard question to answer, though. And the clever thing that Jones and Summer do is they don't ask it. Instead, they ask a different question, which is much easier to answer. What would happen if we took a break from R&D for a year? Now, why would that be an easier question to answer? Well, because in our super simple model, if we stop all the R&D, we stop all the growth. And we no longer have to estimate how much growth do we get for an extra dollar of R&D. We just know that if we stop all the R&D, we stop all the growth. Simple as that. So now let's get more specific. Suppose under normal circumstances, we spend a constant share of GDP on research and development. And we're going to call that share S, the letter S, you know, it's a variable name. In return, the economy grows by this long-run average, and we're going to call that variable G, so G percent per year. In the USA, between 1953 and 2019, the annual share of GDP that was spent on research and development was about 2.5 percent, so S the variable uh, corresponding to the share of GDP spent on R&D was 0.025. Over the same period, GDP per capita, when you, you know, in real terms adjusted for inflation, grew by about 1.8% per year. So this G variable is equal to 0.018. Now, if we hit pause on R&D for one year, then in that particular year, we save 2.5% of GDP because we don't have to spend it on R&D. But the trade-off is that GDP per capita stays stuck at its current level for one year instead of growing by 1.8%. But that's not a full accounting of the benefits or the costs of of stopping R&D for one year. In the next year, our R&D break will end, and we're going to start spending 2.5% of GDP on R&D again. But because we took that break, we didn't grow in the previous year. And that means that GDP is going to be smaller than it otherwise would have been. And since we always spend 2.5% of GDP on R&D, we'll be devoting a bit less money to R&D than we otherwise would have since 2.5%, you know, since the amount we spend will be 2.5% of a smaller number, a smaller GDP. And because we didn't grow in the previous year, we'll also start growing from a lower level in the next year than we would have been if we hadn't taken our R&D break. And that's also gonna be true in the next period and the next and the next. In fact, in every year until the end of time, GDP per capita will be 1.8% lower than it would have been if we had not taken that R&D break. So adding up all these costs and benefits over time requires us to do some calculations that use the interest rate, which we're going to use uh, the letter R to represent that. And interest rates are how economists value dollars at different points in time. In the USA, a common interest rate to use for these kind of calculations might be something like 5%. So the R term is equal to 005 Jones and Summers show that the math shakes out so that the ratio from here to infinity of benefits from R&D to costs of R&D is just G divided by S times R. That is the growth rate of GDP per capita divided by the share of GDP that goes to R&D multiplied by the common, you know, the the interest rate that you want to use. So with G equal to 0.018, S equal to 0.025, and R equal to 0.05, we can Put them into the equation, and that gives us benefits to cost ratio of 14.4. What does that mean? Every dollar spent on R&D gets transformed into $14.40. Now, one thing that I really like about this result is that you actually don't need any advanced math to derive it. It's just a simple, well, maybe not simple, but it's the consequence of algebra and the proposed model of how growth and R&D are linked. So in the newsletter, I link to a video, which is just on YouTube, of me going through the calculation. It takes 13 minutes, uh, but it doesn't use any math more advanced than algebra. So if you really want to understand where does this come from, you can just watch this video and you'll basically see exactly where it comes from in a way that my goal is anyone can follow this who knows who's comfortable with algebra. All right. Now, can that really be all there is to it? Are we done? Well, no. If we look more critically at the assumptions that went into generating that number, we can get different values. For the cost-benefit ratio. But the core result of this paper isn't any exact number. It's more the fact that whatever number you believe is the most accurate one, it's a number that's much bigger than one. That means R&D is a reliable money printing machine. On average, if you put a dollar in, you're going to get back out much more than one dollar. But now let's focus on some of these objections to the simple argument we've made so far. So to begin with, is it true that there's really no growth without R&D? So starting at the beginning, we might question that assumption that R&D resources are the only way to get improvements in per capita living standards. If that's wrong, and growth can happen without doing R&D, then our thought experiment's going to be overestimating the returns to R&D, since growth wouldn't actually go to zero if we hypothetically stopped all R&D for that year. Now there are two ways that we could get growth without, getting, without having to do R&D. First, it could be that we can get new technologies without spending resources on R&D. And second, it could be that we get growth without needing to get new technologies. Now, that second case, growth without new technology, is basically excluded by assumption in economics, at least uh, for countries that are operating at the technological frontier. In 1956, Robert Solow and Trevor Swan argued that more countries can't indefinitely increase their material living standards just by investing in more and more capital. And that's because the returns to investment drop as you run out of useful things to build. And eventually you reach this point where the returns to investment are just equally offset by the cost of upkeeping all your capital. And to keep growth growing, you need to discover new useful things to build. And to do that, you need new technology. But on the other hand, that first objection... That maybe there's a way to get new technologies without spending resources on R&D, that objection has a lot more going for it. For instance, a common understanding of innovation is that it's about flashes of insight, serendipity, and ideas that come to you in the shower. Good ideas sometimes just come to us without having to be sought. Now, the trouble with this notion of innovation is that in almost all those cases, the free idea is only part of the story. It might provide a roadmap, but there's still a long journey to go from an idea to the execution. And that journey typically in the modern world, requires resources to be expended. In terms of our thought experiment, if it still takes R&D to translate an unplanned inspiration into growth, then we're actually measuring the returns to R&D correctly. If we turned off R&D, those insights wouldn't get realized, and so growth would freeze until we began R&D again. Now, that might not always be the case. In The Secret of Our Success, a book by Joseph Henrich He gives this fictional example of how a package of hunting techniques could evolve over several generations without diverting any economic resources to innovation. So in his example, it's about proto-humans, and they're using sticks to fish termites out of a nest to eat, and one of them mistakenly believes that the stick has to be sharp for this to work, and maybe it's because their mother taught them the technique with a sharp stick, but he didn't realize that the sharp was just sort of incidental. One day, he's accidentally Uh, doing this. And he accidentally plunges his sharp stick into an abandoned termite mound and impales this rodent. He's invented, so to speak, a spear. And the proto-humans observe this. They realize it works. They start using the spears to impale prey. A generation later, another proto-human sees rabbits leaving tracks in the mud and going back into their hole. And he realizes, hey, he can follow those tracks of the hole and use the spear instead of just hoping that he sees an animal. And so bit by bit, Cumulative cultural evolution can happen, leading to this steadily more technologically sophisticated society. And these kinds of processes aren't stuck in the ancient past. Something like this still happens today. In learning by doing models of innovation, firms get more productive as they gain experience in a production process. And the process by which this happens is likely another form of sort of evolution, with workers and managers tinkering with their process and selectively retaining the changes that improve productivity. Now, maybe we could call this kind of purposeful tinkering R&D if we wanted to, but it's not the kind of thing that's recorded in national statistics. Now, here's the rub with all that, though. With modern learning by doing, we typically think of firms and workers finding efficiencies and productivity hacks in production processes that are novel to them, or novel in general. And where do new and unfamiliar production processes come from? Well, in the modern world, typically they're the result of purposeful R&D. Now, if that's the case, then in the long run, we're once again accounting correctly for the costs and benefits of R&D by using this Jones and Summers framework. In this case, if we turned off R&D for one year, we're going to delay by one year the creation of these new production processes that would then experience these rapid learning by doing gains in subsequent years. Of course. It could be that they're still learning by doing with older technologies, but learning by doing models typically assume progress is really, really slow in mature technologies because there just aren't many beneficial tweaks left to discover in those kinds of uh, processes. They've already been optimized a long time ago. And, you know, that's all pretty consistent with what we know about growth in the era before there was much purposeful R&D. Innovation by tinkering and cumulative cultural evolution is probably the right model for innovation before the industrial revolution, and as best as we can tell, growth during that period was painfully slow, almost zero by modern standards. Now, all that said, if you still believe growth can happen without R&D, you can still use this framework to compute the benefits of R&D and adjust it to take that into account. It's just now you need to use only the fraction of growth that comes from R&D as your benefit. So I think... And I've argued that almost all long-run growth in the modern world comes from doing R&D. But if you think it's less, if you think maybe just 50% does, then that's going to cut the benefits in half, and the benefit-cost ratio will also get cut in half, but it's still a very high 7.2. Put in a dollar, get $7.2 back. A second objection to this initial estimate of the returns to R&D makes the opposite point. R&D is not costlessly translated into growth. New ideas must be laboriously spun out into new products and infrastructure that are then disseminated across the economy before growth benefits are realized. When you focus exclusively on the R&D costs, that overstates the returns to R&D because it understates the true costs of getting that growth. So take the COVID-19 vaccine as one example. Pfizer has said the R&D costs to developing the vaccine were about a billion dollars. But once Pfizer had an FDA-approved vaccine... The benefits weren't just instantly realized by society. Instead, the shots needed to be manufactured and put into arms, and the cost of building that manufacturing capacity ought to be accounted for as part of the cost of deriving a benefit from the R&D they did. Now, we don't know exactly how much the U.S. spends on embodying newly discovered ideas in physical form so that they can materially impact growth. But we do know that since 1960... Total U.S. private sector investment in new capital, that's not just upkeep and replacing of existing capital, that's been about 4% of GDP per year. Now, not all of that is the upgrading of capital to incorporate new ideas that we've discovered. Some of it is just extending old-style capital over a growing population. Think here of building new houses on the same plan as old houses. But it's a plausible upper bound on how much we spend turning ideas into tangible things. If we add the 4% of GDP that's spent annually on net investment to the 2.5% that's spent explicitly on R&D, we can get this revised estimate that the US spends 6.5% of GDP per year on creating and building new technologies. So if we return to our original estimate for the benefit-cost ratio of R&D but use S equal to 0.065 instead of 0.025, we get that the benefit-cost ratio is now 55 It's a lot lower, but it's still saying every dollar you spend on R&D generates $5.50 in value. All right, the next one. Does R&D instantly impact growth? You know, okay, it's important to count costs correctly, but by the same token, we may believe the benefits of R&D are overstated. The simple framework that I laid out above assumed that if you pause R&D, you pause growth at the same time, but clearly that's not correct. In reality, R&D isn't instantly translated into growth. Now, about 17% of U.S. R&D is spent on basic research, that is science, that's not necessarily directed towards any specific technological application. As I've argued before in other newsletters, this kind of investment does eventually lead to technological innovation, but it takes time. 20 years is not a bad estimate of how long it takes to go from science to technology. Invested at 5% annually, $1 today is worth $2.65 in 20 years. But conversely that means $1 received in 20 years is only worth 38 cents today because if you invested 38 cents at 5% per year you'd end up back with a dollar in 20 years. So the implication is that benefits that arrive in the more distant future should be more discounted in our accounting framework. For example, if we believe spending R&D resources today only had an impact on growth in 20 years, then we would want to discount our estimate of the benefits down to 38% of our sort of initial level when we assumed that the benefits showed up instantly. And that would imply a cost benefit ratio of 5.5 again, as compared to 14.4 that we sort of initially computed. But yeah, that's too far. That's a big overestimate, since only 17% of R&D is spent on basic science. The other 83% is spent on applied science and development, both of which have much shorter time horizons. How short? I don't know. But just to illustrate, let's assume... of R&D has a 20-year time horizon. It's basic science. Uh, 33% of R&D, so not quite twice as much, has a 10-year horizon, which implies we should discount it by 61% compared to if it came immediately. And then the remaining half of R&D, let's say that that has just a five-year horizon. And that means that we should discount growth by 78% relative to if it came instantly. We should discount it to 78% of that level. So in that case, it all shakes out. The average discount we should apply due to the fact that R&D isn't instantly translated into growth is 66%. So what does that mean? It means a benefits cost ratio of about 9.5 as compared to this original 14.4. Again, the point isn't any specific number, just that under a lot of sensible assumptions, the return is a lot more than one. All right, so far, we've looked at some ways in which the benefits to cost ratio might be overestimated. Of these, I think the argument that we should include investment as part of the cost of getting a benefit from R&D is a pretty good one, as well as the argument that we should discount the benefits by time since they don't arrive instantly. Let's combine those estimates and get a benefit-cost ratio on the order of about 3.6. Every dollar spent on R&D plus the investment necessary to push that R&D into the physical world, that gets us at least $3.60 in value. But we also have plenty of reasons why we could argue It's inappropriate to simply use GDP per capita as our measure of the benefits of R&D. There are many benefits from R&D that don't show up in the GDP numbers. We could have reduced carbon emissions from alternative energy sources and from greater fuel efficiency. There's the reduction in work hours that more productive technology has allowed us to realize over the last century. There's the increased value of leisure time due to the internet, There's the years of life saved by the COVID-19 vaccine. Indeed, the years of life saved by biomedical innovation overall. So Jones and Summers take a stab at an estimate of the benefits of biomedical innovation that don't show up in GDP. Biomedical innovation is probably the single largest sector of our innovation system. It accounts for maybe 20 to 30 percent of total R&D spending. One way to try and get at the non-GDP benefits of this biomedical innovation is to estimate the value people place on longer lives, using things like their spending to reduce their risk of death to sort of impute how much do they value extra years of life. I don't know how much confidence we want to put in those numbers, but Summers and Jones estimate that a range of reasonable estimates would lead us to increase the estimated benefits of R&D by between 20% and 140%. So if we take a benefit-cost ratio of 3.6, which is the one I kind of favor at uh, at the beginning of this section, well, if we multiply that by, if we up that by 20 to 140%, we're talking about a benefit-cost ratio of more like 4.3 to 8.6. That is, a dollar of R- spent on R&D is getting you between 4 and $8 of value back. Estimating the general non-GDP benefits of innovation beyond biomedical innovation is probably just an inherently subjective task. But here's one attempt I came up with at a thought experiment to get a sense of how much value you get out of innovation that isn't reflected in GDP. So suppose there's this magical genie. You know, these kinds of things do happen in thought experiments. And he offers you to set you on one of two parallel timelines. The first timeline is our own timeline, where innovation is going to continue to happen the same as it has for a century, and GDP per capita is going to continue to grow at 1.8% per year. The second timeline is a weird one. It's one where technology's frozen at our current level, But magically, everyone gets richer at a rate of 2.25% per year as long as you do R&D, which is 25% faster than in our current timeline. That is, in the second timeline, you get a bit more money, but you don't have access to new products and services that innovation would bring. If we were to compute the benefit-to-cost ratio of R&D in that second world, it would be 25% higher than in our current timeline since growth there is 25% higher. If GDP per capita is a good metric of the value of innovation, then you'll obviously want to choose that second timeline. But if you pick the first one where you get access to these new goods and services, it means you value access to them at a level that's at least 25% above their measured impact on GDP per capita. Now, it's kind of hard to think what choice you would actually make in this scenario since it's really foreign to us to think about choosing between different growth rates. So consider an alternative formulation where the genie just offers you this following single choice, a cash payment right now equal to 20% of your current income, but you get the opportunity to purchase products and services that have been developed between now and 2031 or choice number two, a cash payment right now equal to 25% of your current income. So which do you choose? That first choice is basically where you're going to expect to be in the year 2031. 1.8% growth compounded over 10 years means that you'll have 20% more income. And in the year 2031, you'll also have access to all technologies invented between now and then. The second choice gives you a growth rate that is about 25% higher than the other, but no access to the non-monetary benefits of innovation. You just get the cash. Again, if you pick that first one, you're saying that GDP per capita undervalues the benefits of innovation over the next decade by at least 25%. And so you should scale up your assessment of the benefits to cost ratio of R&D by 25%. Now suppose we offer you an even better deal or a different deal. Suppose that it's either 20% plus the option to buy future goods or 30% cash payment right now. If you still prefer option one, Uh, that tells you that you think GDP per capita undervalues the benefits to innovation by 50%. And so you should scale up your assessment of the benefits to cost ratio of R&D by 50%, and so on and so forth. All told, Jones and Summers' thought experiment essentially argues that R&D is this money printing machine. If you ignore benefits that don't accrue to GDP, every dollar you put into your R&D machine gets you back more than $3.60 in value, possibly a lot more. So why don't we use this money printing machine much more? Why are we only spending $2.50 out of every $100 on R&D? Well, there are two main reasons. First, the value created by R&D is distributed widely throughout society and doesn't primarily accrue to the R&D funder. If I put $1 of my own cash into this R&D machine, I'm not getting back three sixty. Very likely, I might get back less than the dollar I put in. The private sector funds about 70% of U.S. R&D, and for them, the average social return on R&D doesn't really matter. What matters is the private return that that firm is going to receive. So that's the private sector, but that doesn't account for why the U.S. government itself doesn't spend more on R&D. Presumably the government should care about the social return. So one obvious possibility is that decision makers and government face incentives that also don't reward R&D spending. Maybe election cycles are too short for any politician to get credit for funding more R&D. Maybe the R&D funded by governments gets implemented by businesses and those businesses get all the credit. Or maybe governments are just skeptical of academic theory. I don't know what the answer is. But another possibility is that this is a problem related to knowledge. The average return to R&D must be quite high if all of this argument that we've been through holds. But that doesn't mean the next dollar we spend will earn the average return. Maybe we funded the best R&D ideas first and every additional dollar is spent on a successively less promising R&D project. If we want to argue that R&D should be increased, we want to know the marginal return to R&D. That is, how much extra GDP will we get if we spend another dollar on R&D, given what we're already spending? As I said at the outset of this post, that's actually a much harder question to answer. But there are some attempts to answer it, and they also find a quite high rate of return. That's what I hope to look at next week. Thanks, everyone. And now it's time for the standard end of the episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation in accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.